Welcome to the Permission to Succeed podcast. The purpose of our podcast is to inspire you with stories and wisdom learned from people who are out there killing it. People who at some point in their life gave themselves permission to succeed. Now, onto the show with your hosts, Matt Halloran and Doug Heikinen. Hello, and welcome to the Permission to Succeed podcast. We're live at the Investment Advisor Summit in Austin, Texas. The Permission to Succeed podcast is about learning from and being inspired by people who found that point in their lives to throw caution to the side and just go for it. They gave themselves permission to be special and also to help those around them succeed as well. And our guest today has been absolutely killing it out there in a variety of ways. Please welcome Rob Nestor. Hi, Doug. How are you? I'm good. Rob is now the president of Direction, and he has spent a ton of time in the financial services industry building things. He built things at Vanguard. He built things at iShares, and now he's building again. So what's that about? You, you know, Doug, um, from, you know, I came into this industry with not a strong sense of where I wanted to go, where I wanted to be. Uh, to be quite candid, I started at Vanguard primarily because of a family relationship into a fund accounting role. And while you know, I ascended through that, there was throughout that time a lot of doubt on where I wanted to go with my career. But I'm a big believer in that careers are largely built on both a, a bit of serendipity, but when that opportunity comes, to really capitalize and drive through that. So for me, and I tell a lot of people about my most, the, uh, the, the seminal moment for me in my career was an opportunity to go and lead and drive product development for Vanguard that came out of a serendipitous moment. Uh, there was the Asian currency crisis of the late 90s. I was a senior manager in fund accounting run, running international. And overnight, I was in the office of the chairman of Vanguard making recommendations about how we value the funds in that currency crisis because I was international accounting manager. A few weeks later, they asked me to come up and run global product development. And uh, you know, a lot of that was built on what I, what I think was sort of pretty cogent recommendations on where we should you know, invest and where we should value securities in a crisis. And I you know, was able to, with a lot of help from, from mentors along the way, to sort of jump through that hoop, jump into product development, and it, it took off from there. Overnight, I went from someone very unknown at Vanguard uh, in a office, back office function to one of uh, the larger voices just because product development was so important at Vanguard. And from there, my career just took off. So you're at Vanguard a long time. How do you pull up those reins and, and try to go do it again at iShares? You know, again, another serendipitous moment. Uh, I thought I would work for Vanguard my entire career, quite frankly. I loved the company. I loved the mission that they were all about. Everyone knows the story behind, you know, Jack Bogle and how he, you know, fundamentally transformed investing and more importantly, fundamentally worked so hard for uh, a better cost equation for investors. Um, I launched their initial ETFs in that role as head of product development. Um, and I was pretty convinced that ETFs were the next big, uh, the, the better mousetrap to mutual funds and were going to be 
very, very big, far bigger than they even were back then. So now we're talking about, you know, 2006, 2007, where the entire ETF market was, you know, two to three hundred billion dollars. Now, globally, it's over five trillion. And, uh, you know, iShares came and um, wanted me to come and help build ETF product consulting and portfolio analysis. And, you know, at that point, I didn't feel Vanguard was as committed to the business as as now they have come to be. And I just felt that it was where my career could take the next move up. So I decided to accept uh, the offer to go work for iShares, which was then part of Barclays Bank and part of what was called then BGI, and then later, uh, a couple years later, acquired by BlackRock, and that started sort of the second major chapter, I will say, in my in my career. And now we are on the third major chapter. Now we are on doing the it major, again. Doing so, it again. what about direction led you there, and what's going to happen? Yeah. So, so a couple of different things. I, I, I say to people over and over again that my 25 plus years, actually uh, just over 26 years at Vanguard and BlackRock, I wouldn't trade them for the world. A tremendously formative organizations, great people, great brands. And, uh, but, you know, the last couple of years I'd begun to get uh, you know, I would say a bit frustrated, quite frankly, about the realities of of growing such large asset bases. So, if you think about BlackRock, for instance, uh, they're six and a half trillion dollar asset manager, incredible success overall. But they're also, you know, uh, a public company that demands growth and. The math is just really, really hard at six and a half trillion dollars. Mm-hmm. It's the reality of growing something that big, and that begun to sort of manifest itself in you know, in shifting priorities and you know just sort of difficulty and in, in needing you know being able to sort of focus on just a few things. So when you're that big, you have to. You have to win pretty much every battle you're in in the ETF business in financial products. And I had longed to, for you know, in that last 18 to 24 months, to go focus on doing just a couple of things really, really white um, from some with, with an organization that was just focused on a few things. So uh, when Direction called to give me a chance to sort of come lead the firm, and be able to sort of focus on doing just a couple of things really, really well. I leaped at the chance to, to take sort of the next chapter in that career, but it was not without trepidation. Obviously, there's a lot of safety in large companies like Vanguard and BlackRock, great brands, great people, Uber resources. The phone always gets answered uh, when BlackRock and Vanguard call. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I recognized that it was going to be a very different challenge in that regard for a much, much smaller player in a very distinct niche area. But I, I, I really wanted that challenge at this point in my career. So with so many ETFs out there, how how can you win? Is it is it brand driven? Is it product driven? How do you rise above the, the masses yeah, of everything that's out there? It, it's a great question. And we talk about it all the time from a strategy standpoint. So when I was growing up in the business, so to speak, a great product idea was generally enough. And what I mean by that is that 
it was a really good idea the marketplace would would find it. It's not to say that sales and marketing didn't matter back then. It mattered, but it was it was primarily driven by the product idea. I think things have dramatically changed in the ETF business now. We have over 2,200 ETFs domestically. And a great product idea is is, is really table stakes at this point. Um, I think the challenge for the business now is uh, getting distribution right, getting marketing and sales right. So part of that is brand, uh, unequivocally. But part of that is being really, really good at finding the investors that are most relevant to the value proposition you want to deliver, most in need of that, and, and telling a very compelling story. And that really is about sales and marketing effectiveness. And I think that's really what has changed um, very much so in the industry over the last five years. So let's talk about where you became a builder. Where, where did you grow up in? And was that always the case? Were you building things as a kid? A little bit. I was a big Legos fan, so yeah. I guess that I guess that uh, that counts for something. I, I grew up in suburban Philadelphia, Catholic raised family, uh, traditional middle class, from you know two two parents that raised six kids. Uh, I was the fifth of six, five bro- five uh, boys and a girl, and uh, I, I I wouldn't say. Doug, from a very young age that I saw, you know, unequivocally that, that builder. I think for some people, they, they see it right away. I, I'm not sure I would say I saw it right away. I, I was a shy, shy kid, and uh, but I was always sort of a numbers guy, always sort of a math guy. And, and that led me to, I think, you know, being able to have early success in financial services, uh, particularly, you know, in, in the sense that, you know, if you got the investment ideas back then, 25 years ago, you could get identified pretty quickly in organizations. And, you know, I get asked a lot about sort of, you know, what were the early, early things that led to your success and what, and, and how can, you know, how is I, um, uh, a new entrance to the workforce. Uh, there's a couple of, of things that I've always um, suggested that people think about. One is when they enter a new job, find something that's relevant to your business relative to what the company's trying to do, or wh- or whether you just think there's an opportunity that 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 few people understand, and become the expert there. It allows you to sort of stand out within your organization. And for me. Uh, this is really getting to the weeds, but for me, that was figuring out the accounting of mortgage-backed securities. <laughs> it, started, it was uh, a black hole uh, in the industry and for accounting at, at Vanguard, and I quickly became the expert on that, um, and that was a real catalyst to, to me rising up through, through the management in the middle office. So this is the Permission to Succeed podcast, and can you remember a time when you really had to look in the mirror and, and say, God, I got to go do this and give yourself permission to, to do it? Yeah, I'd say, I'd say that the, the two critical aspects were, were, were one, leaving Vanguard to go to, to go to what is now BlackRock and then from BlackRock to, to Direction. I left Vanguard with a lot of trepidation. Uh, I truly believed in the mission of the company. I, I really did. I drank the Kool-Aid, um, and it's an absolutely fantastic 
company in terms of what it's done for investors. So when I had been approached many times, or many, maybe an overstatement, but probably you know, a half a dozen times in the last couple of years I was there to come go work for other places. And I never really ever seriously considered, in fact, I didn't even return calls from, from recruiters because I so believed in what Vanguard was doing and I had great affection for the company and everything. But I just saw such a tremendous opportunity in ETFs um, and I just felt like now was the now was a chance to really change the I don't know the trajectory of my career. I had been relatively successful at that point, raised rose to officer at at Vanguard, but I just saw an opportunity to go on a a, a fundamentally steeper curve, so to speak, and and so that was with a lot of trepidation, particularly because my job was was uh, was a bit odd in the sense that. I worked for a company that was West Coast centric, out of my home office, a room not much bigger than the one we are in here. It today. couldn't be smaller than this. <laughs> it was cl- actually it it was it was Doug, it was close. It was actually uh, this is absolute uh, truth. It was under the steps of an unfinished basement, a crawl space that was intended to be a bathroom that we had never finished. And you were at Vanguard at this time? No, that's when I went to BlackRock. Because so when BlackRock recruited me, they were yeah. a San Francisco-focused right. Uh, right. company, uh, or San Francisco headquartered with not any... With on no, Mission Street still, right? Uh, they're on Howard. On now. Howard, okay. Yeah. And I actually initially said, thanks, but no thanks, because my family does not want to move to San Francisco. And they said... What if we do it virtually? What if, you know, you have to be here every three weeks, but what if you work the rest of the time, you know, from home? And I said, so I've been going to the you know, office six, 16 years every day. Yeah. Uh, it's like, okay, I'll give that a shot uh, and see how it goes. And I will tell you, it was a struggle the first couple of years, Doug, in the sense that even being there every three weeks, I think most of the people in the business knew my name many still couldn't put the name with the face. I was this voice on a speakerphone for, for many. And that, that uh, was a struggle early days. But and that was part of the whole trepidation uh, of going there. But I made it work until, you know, for, for 11 years, I worked for, out of my home office. Now, my home office became much more substantial after that, I promise you. Uh, but I worked for 11 years virtually for... For BlackRock. So that takes an incredible amount of support, not only from BlackRock, but from others. So who, talk about that kind of thing. It did. Uh, you know, BlackRock was incredibly supportive, you know, in that. And, you know, I once had a conversation with, with the head of the, uh, the iShares business. Uh, this was probably four or five years after I was in. And he said uh, to me, is nobody's pressuring you to move to, to San Francisco, are they? Or, and then by that time, BlackRock started to have a New York presence or New York. Uh, and I, I said, no, is this the beginning of a conversation? <laughs> and he said, no, I just want to assure you that you are incredibly productive where you are. Uh, and, you know, don't feel any pressure uh, implied or otherwise to necessarily move to New York. We'd love to have you. 
but don't feel that pressure. So I, my point being, I had great support, but that was just only you know part of technology certainly enabled it. So, you know, the first couple of years, I was nothing but uh, a desk not too different from this and a speakerphone. Uh, as technology evolved, the last four or five years, and so all, you know, all my interactions when I was at home, I was there frequently physically, but all my interactions at home were just on a speakerphone, just on a conference call. By the end, I had a dedicated video machine on my desk that was plugged into BlackRock's entire global conference room system. So whether it was Tokyo, whether it was London, or whether it was San Francisco, when I was on a call or when I was on a meeting and I happened not to be in an office, I was on an overhead screen. But I thank, you know, so thankful BlackRock invested in that technology because yeah. they're a truly global firm and they had to. But, you know, it allowed me to plug right into that. It, it just has made the world smaller. I mean, you, you know, we all know how much technology has made the world smaller. And I would tell you, Doug, there was no greater benefit of that than me. In that yeah, regard. and vir- working virtually has become so popular these days. But that back then, not so. Not so. So, so no. not only is support from BlackRock, but your your family. That's right, my family. So hey, when 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 Dad is you know in the office, you can't disturb him. He's working. You need to. He's off limits. Was just uh, huge, and they respected that the entire time. There was always you know incidents over the years that I uh, that are quite funny actually. Uh, but by and large, are very supportive of that. Yeah, so it was great. And, you know, also by the end, it wasn't just, you know, traditional meetings with 8, 10, 12 people in the room that I was on, always on video. Uh, but even by, by, and within the last two years, every one of my calls one-on-one, because BlackRock had video capabilities on every single person's desktop in the entire firm. So I stopped calling and communicating with people with a traditional, you know, mm-hmm. conference call, and I was dialing them up on this video machine, and it went right to their desktop, and we could see. It's caused me to be a, uh, and well, I'm sure we'll segue to that at some point, but it caused me to be such a big believer in video because my new firm, well, we don't have people working virtually per se. We do have three different offices, four different offices actually. You know, where you know most of us are in New York, but we have a team in Milwaukee, we have a team in Boston. We have a team in Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, it wasn't a firm that used video that extensively. And I insisted on it from, from day one. Uh, you know, got, we got cameras on everyone's desktops. Every one of uh, meetings that is more than sort of one-on-one is done in our video conference rooms so that the folks in Milwaukee, the folks in Boston, the folks in Hong Kong feel, you know, close and the shrinking that we were talking about i think it was is incredible incredibly important how has financial services changed since you started and is it is it changed in a good way uh i i think it's changed in a in a great way i mean beyond that the realities that the cost of investing has been driven down so far so that, that's one. Uh, I think everyone kind of is familiar with that story now. The rise of index and passive investing, uh, which there's a core, there's a connection there. They're not the exact same thing, but they're highly related. Yeah, a lot built off of the vision of, of Jack Bogle, who is my investment hero, who recently passed away. And just the, the, uh, the 
um, access to advice has just exploded um, uh, and low cost advice in this area. So those are all sort of interconnected elements. Um, and I think the, the, the deal for investors, you, you think about the exorbitant cost that investors pay 20, 30, even 40 years ago when you think about when it, you know in the 70s it used to cost $50 to buy to buy a stock. Um, and ETFs aren't weren't even around then. Now you can buy a stock for most places no more than 3 or $4. Many places it's absolutely free. It is it is absolutely incredible what through technology, through awareness, you know, how much costs have been driven down and the investor, the end investor, the the individuals, the family saving in Peoria have been an incredible beneficiary of that. I wonder if technology has helped advisors more than end investors, or if there's so much information out there that it's now more confusing for end investors, or they're becoming more educated. Yeah, I, well, I think it's a little bit of both, quite frankly. I mean, I think what has also happened, related, somewhat related technologies, the barriers to entry have certainly been lowered. Yeah. So there is, you know, many, many more, more products, more information. I think net net. Um, that has been absolutely a huge benefit overall for investors, but there are there are some risks to some of that. There are risks that people, you know, either misinterpret or feel the need to act on a new set of information when maybe they should just sort of take it in. I think that happens a little bit on, on the margin, but I, I think. I think net-net uh, has been an incredible benefit for, for investors. So, so back to this last leap mm-hmm. to direction. Yep. Was there fear to overcome? Was there a kind Absolutely. of... Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, the, the heritage of the firm has been in the you know, leverage and inverse space that has been sort of narrowly focused on the trading community. It was not... It is not their focus was not you know, what broader sort of mainstream ETF uh, business has been. So one, there was trepidation on whether philosophically, you know, that would feel good for me every day. And, uh, you know, and I've learned that, you know, uh, the, the misunderstanding of these products has been, you know, it was really substantial. I've learned a tremendous amount about it. But the, the bigger, the bigger trepidation for me was the, the leaving the safety of a very big, very big companies like BlackRock and Vanguard. Uh, they're just safe places to work, great brands. I knew I would have to develop some, you know, the reality is the phone get answered, gets answered when BlackRock calls, when Vanguard calls. As a very small ETF player, it's easy to sort of deflect us. And, you know, how would I feel operating for a company without Uber resources, without the tremendously formative global brands of Vanguard and, and BlackRock? And would I thrive in, you know, in that environment? But, you know, one, one the opportunity to run my own firm, to, to, to focus on just doing a couple of things really, really well, and to you know come back to this theme we talked about to just to work smaller and more intimately with a team mm-hmm. was an opportunity i could not could not pass up and i meet with every single person in the firm we're about 50 people 
Uh, I mean, with every single person in the firm every six weeks. And that's really, really important to me. What's got you really excited about the future of direction? So our heritage, as we said, is in the leverage and inverse business. And you think about our sort of core DNA. Our core DNA was about using derivatives, which aren't widely utilized in the ETF industry um, due to lack of expertise or what have you, to use derivatives to amplify returns, provide more precise exposures, and access the short side of markets. And that DNA in, you know, in our minds ports very, very nicely beyond sort of just highly leveraged products for tactical traders, meaning we've reconstituted that new products to get at what are the big sort of investment themes are in ETF land and broader investments uh, going forward, whether it be strategic asset allocators, whether it be thematic top-down investors, which are frankly the much larger pools of assets in in investment management and be relevant there. And we really feel like we've got a great strategy that we're very excited about and are executing on. So it's it's just really, really fun, Doug, every day coming 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 to the business, coming to the office and working with a team like so committed to this business. It's been really energizing for me at this point in my career. And you've been successful at two different stops. So what does all this success mean to you? That's a great question. You know, sometimes I probably don't take enough time to sort of take step back on that. I have, you know, I I think of myself as a as an introvert. Uh, I think of myself. I am an introvert. I'm a pretty big introvert as it goes. And and so success has never for me been defined by, uh, you know. you know, that, that Rob Nestor is being seen as like highly successful in the industry in and of itself. For me, it really is about, as, as sappy as this might sound, it's really about enjoying getting out of bed every day and going to a job for which you have passion and work with people that you really like. And, you know, I had no idea when I went to, to direction whether that would be the case. I, you know, I spent most of my time with the former CEO, uh, now the former CEO and, and owner of the firm, tried to get uh, a meeting of the minds philosophically and make sure that the culture that I felt like they, they were exhibiting to me was consistent with what, you know, you know, I would be interested in. And so there was, there was a lot of uncertainty. I, I always say to people that, be careful of the grass is always greener on the other side. Be very, very careful of that <laughs> because, you know, you, you, you just don't know what you're facing. But, but if you feel like you're not, you're losing passion on what you're doing, it's probably time for a change. And, uh, you know, that's what was happening towards the end of my time at BlackRock. I, I was losing passion. And, you know, it's just been completely revitalized in going with direction. And so that, that's been really great. And so, so getting back to your, you know, primary question, what's most important to you, what drives that it's really enjoying what you're doing, having passion with great people. So lastly, what advice would you have to share to an entrepreneur out there who may be struggling, needs to get over a barrier and wants to succeed? Well, I will tell you candidly that um, I've been an entrepreneur in bigger companies, but I have not taking I have not taken the risk of true that true entrepreneurs often have to take every day. And what I mean by that is 
starting with a kernel of an idea and putting their, you know, a lot of perspiration into it, not knowing where the next paycheck's coming from. I've said to people many times over my career that I have always been uh, admirer of those that can do that. I came from a family that actually did. My father, my brother, and sister started a business from scratch where they didn't know where the next paycheck was coming from. I could have joined that business. It just wasn't something I had, you know, interest in. And that detail, you know, doesn't matter. But you really have to follow your passion. If you have passion for it, that's not going to guarantee success. But it's a required ingredient. And if you can find others that share that same passion, you are increasing the probability of success multifold. And uh, I, I suggest for those new entrants into the business, for a new entrants into sort of out of college, go work for a big company. Go work for a big company and get the experience and opportunities that that provides early in a career. And then find that, find that passion, that idea, and, and go after it. Rob, thanks so much for joining us today. It's been just great. If you've not subscribed to the podcast, please make sure you click that button below. That way, you'll, when a guest like this joins us, you'll get a notification for everyone at iris.xyz and the Permission to Succeed production staff. We appreciate Rob for joining us and Investment for, for being our gracious host in here in beautiful Austin. This is Doug Heiken, and thank you for joining us.